This week's episode is brought to you by the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo. You know, you really want to understand the gate path decision into why you're buying a product in the first place. And so if you're super close to Rihanna or you're super close to Carrie Underwood or Megan Trainer, and you identify with them as a person, things that they want to build are going to be of deep relevance to you. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. What is the secret to long-term sustainable growth? Some may think it's a really great brand. Others may say it's a awesome crew of growth and performance marketers. But many are realizing that without a great product, you really can't survive. I know you may think that's a bit silly considering we are in the retail industry and products are what drive it every day. But you'd be surprised how many brand operators and founders get lost in the minutiae of branding and positioning and storytelling but many times the product doesn't fulfill the promise. That's why I'm excited to have Leonard Brody on the pod today. He is co-founder and executive chairman of Caravan, and they are a company that has helped build some remarkable brands. Companies like Fit52, which is developed in partnership with Carrie Underwood, and Yummers, which is a pet brand founded by two of the members of the Queer Eye Fab Five. The common denominator, they're celebrity brands. Now, you may think that in and of itself, celebrity brands are marketing plays, but not so. Let's dig into the conversation because Leonard really peels back all of the layers that go into developing these brands, Caravan's approach, and how the product really needs to come first. Listen in, because even if you're not in the whole celebrity brand business, you don't want to work with celebrities, you don't want to collaborate with them, still, he is a brand guy, a product guy first, and he has some awesome takeaways. Listen in, and you will see what I mean. Leonard, thanks so much for being on the show. I am so excited to have you on today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. First of all, I am so fascinated by the work that Caravan is doing because it seems like your company is a bit of a quiet force in the retail and consumer brand industry, kind of like a figure behind the curtain, so to speak. I don't want to tell the story or tell the background for you. So why don't we start with that? Just a little bit about Caravan, the business model, and of course, its objectives. Sure. We're kind of like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> exactly. Well, firstly, again, thank you for having me. I, I would say that the best way to think of Caravan is we build and co-found science-backed consumer brands or technical-backed consumer brands authentically with the world's most iconic artists and athletes. And we do that in partnership with Creative Artists Agency or CEA in Los Angeles. And we tend to be very data focused. We use an incredible amount of research, an incredible amount of thought goes into market data and consumer data. 
in order to build, but we're always looking predominantly for what is the science or technical moat in what we build, super important to our model and super important to what we do. And that's the story. We started, I had sold a company years ago to the Anschutz Group in Los Angeles and Denver, and we were clients of CA, got to know the, the folks of CA really well. And the history was that the agency had been building a lot of brands for a number of years, and it was just getting more and more sophisticated. And I think the time was right to build something that we and, and CAA could use to really systematize what they were doing and take way more swings at bat in a more organized way. So we're kind of like a film studio that makes companies. So interesting. And I really appreciate the mention of science-backed and also data-validated, I think, People almost underestimate the work and intention that goes into creating a new brand or a new business, especially um, in cases where public figures or celebrities, artists are involved in the brand itself, right? I think it kind of creates that false association that like, oh, it's just a celebrity brand, like they just wanted to put their face on something, right? So let's dig a little bit deeper into that because you guys have powered some pretty incredible brands. Like I know when I saw Yummers, which is a pet brand founded by Queer Eyes, Anthony and Jonathan, I was like, oh, they did that? Like I just know from my circle of friends and you know colleagues that follow them. And of course, Fit 52, which was inspired by Carrie Underwood. So I want to dig into this idea of like the quote unquote celebrity brand because the early ages of influencer marketing and influencers, it was like, oh, the age of celebrities powering brands is over or it's no longer effective. And it seems like we're kind of going back in a circle in a lot of ways because we're seeing a lot of movement in this space. Can you kind of share your perspectives on that and why these brands or brands like this, I guess I should say, still have weight and still have power over the consumer? I mean, is it that data piece that you were just mentioning? Like, how does that relevance really shine through? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot to unpack in this. It's, you know, 60 years of history with celebrities backing products. The way to think about it is, historically, folks that had audiences, celebrities, pre-social media, they would do a lot of endorsement and license, you know, Elizabeth Taylor's perfume and Jessica Simpson's clothing line. And a lot of those deals were done as sort of licensing or endorsement structures, which by the way, nothing wrong with. Those are great for certain kinds of products and certain kinds of circumstances. Those are really important deals for both the people they're doing them with and the artist. I mean, they're incredibly valuable tools. What we do is something a little bit different in the context of number one, the first thing that we do is ask the question, does this product need to exist in the world? Can we do something that's 10 times better than what's out there in the market? So we start at the product. So Caravan's focus is looking for white space, looking for things like the product has to stand on its own without a co-founded celebrity with it. And that's a really important thing for us. And then we go through multiple tests around that, like, is it science-backed, and what's the protectable mode, and what's the data telling us? So we start at product. And secondarily, I think in our world, you're looking for talent that really is interested in being entrepreneurial, 
And our partners and co-founders are really involved in the companies. They're involved in marketing decisions, branding decisions, product. I mean, you would be amazed how active they are in the businesses. So it's quite a different structure than traditional endorsement would be. Like these are their babies as much as they are ours. And they are in it to provide a great product to win and and do well by the customer. So I think that's just a core difference. And I think how this has evolved over time, you're seeing more and more people with audiences be able to speak to them directly in authentic ways. And that's the third bucket of this, which is even if you've got a great product, even if the talent is a massively, massively interested entrepreneur, the connection has to be authentic. It has to be someone who the audience and fans and non-fans alike would see as, oh, I get why this person is doing it and I get why they're involved. So that authenticity is super, super valuable. Putting all that aside, I would say the second thing you're asking is like, why does it matter? Like, is it a good thing to have celebrity backgrounds? I think you will always, always influential co-founders and companies from here in the next 60, 70 years, I think because in a market like today where you don't have the same arbitrage and direct-to-consumer advertising that you did before, standing out and having cost-effective ways of acquiring customers is really important. And there's nothing more valuable than being able to create a face or a brand that's adjacent to an existing brand. Meaning, if you're building pet food like we did in Yummers, or you're building a fitness product like we did in Fit52 with Carrie, you know, Carrie is an unbelievable brand in the fitness space. You know, she's really well known by her audience for physical fitness, her interest in that. And I think that those adjacencies just help cut through the noise. Now, you still have to have a great product. It's still got to make sense in the world. But I think that's why it matters. You know, I think it matters more now than it ever did. Because you're in this position where you went from kind of infinite media, you know, in the social media era to now infinite product. I mean, you are in a sea of product and product discovery that's really complex. And so having talent co-founded companies when they're great products and authentic is a massive way to cut through the noise. So many good points. And I know I've spoken with other guests in the past about this idea of infinite choice, right? An infinite product, especially online and how consumers, I know I speak for myself and my own behaviors, I gravitate to either the brands with really strong founder stories or the brands that kind of build around an ethos or an idea. And it's like a series of products. Like it all like makes sense. Like you were talking about that aha moment with like Carrie Underwood. Like I know she has her own like fitness apparel brand. And like you said, she's known for her passion for fitness. So people can draw those connections and make those associations and say, okay, well, this brand really does make sense. And because she's behind it, I know it has weight, right? And I think that's the most powerful thing. And I know you said the product comes first, which I think is a really notable point. And I would like to dig into that a little bit, especially around how you go about finding that white space and that opportunity. So like going from idea to execution and saying, yes, let's move forward with this. Let's find the right fit to build this brand to the next level. Like how do you go about finding the right inroads for that product development? Yeah, I mean, I think the starting place for this is always about the people who are in the studio making the companies. And the best way to think of Caravan is it's a bridge of two kinds of people, complete 
technical nerds, people that are all focused on technical products, software, every pe- we're technologists first. And then the other half of us are retail and consumer people. And it's this kind of river where these two small inlets meet of technical nerds and people that are consumer and retail experts. And it's kind of a great way to think of what Caravan is. And we run a very strict process when we go through the idea of greenlighting a company. So generally speaking, everything starts with data. Everything starts with consumer data, opportunity data, market data. And we start to kind of hone in. It takes us a couple weeks. Like if there's a germination of something interesting that we see in the market, we'll work on that from a process perspective. We have an analyst on our team who will go and research both, like I said, the actual status of the market in the white space, but also like we'll talk to customers. We always talk to customers before we build anything. So we'll do first party interviews with people we think are in the demographic. Then we'll come back after a couple weeks of that and we'll decide, do we green light this? And if we green light it, what it means is we're now going into the product scoping phase. So that means we're now trying to take what we think is the germination of an idea and try to give it a face, like a an embodiment, make a product around it. And so I think we go through that phase and then we go back and test that with customers before it ever exists. And then once we have the positive signals we're looking for, we will then green light an MVP. And that's where we're actually physically making it. And from that first moment to when the MVP goes live, depending on what sector it is, is usually between anywhere from two months to five months. And we get the product in market pretty quickly. So every step of the way, we are asking ourselves, should we do this? What are customers saying? Did we get this wrong? Did we understand the nuance of the product we were building and its relationship to the customer? So that's how we do it. We are stage gating it consistently and consistently asking whether we've got it right at kind of every single step along the way. Well, it's so fascinating. I always love hearing how that data actually turns into something and validates decisions and kind of sets the path, right, for where the brand should go and could go, especially as you think about brand's differentiation and really how to get that positioning right from the consumer's perspective. So I I guess my next question is around just that, like the consumer behavior side of this. So you mentioned earlier this idea that the consumer has access to so many different product options and having a well-known figure or celebrity kind of helps build that connection and association, especially if it's that right fit. And I'm curious, like, where you think this is going, right? Because We've seen this rapid acceleration of new celebrity brands, right? Like, I feel like everybody thinks of, like, Rihanna, right, as, like, the ultimate, like, the model. Like, she took her passions and, obviously, her positioning and has basically built an empire, right? And then you have the Kardashians, the Jenners, the et cetera's, right? But then at the same time, we also have this ecosystem of mega influencers who are, in some capacity, kind of becoming their their own type of celebrity and their own type of entrepreneur. They're starting their own businesses too. I mean, where do you think this is all going? Especially knowing that consumer behaviors are evolving. Younger consumers especially are very mindful of what they're consuming, who they're buying from, and and maybe are a bit 
aware, hyper aware, I guess, of how marketing works and how the world of celebrity and influencers work. I mean, how is this all evolving simultaneously? And where do you think this is all going? Yeah, I think you have to first look at the kinds of products and companies that are being built. I think that's the starting point, because when you look at the sea of things that people that have influence can make, it can be everything from things that look like merch, you know, so you're a digital influencer and you have a decent sized audience and you've made a successful run of $2 million in sales on t-shirts every year. That's a kind of monetization of celebrity and, and influence. There's nothing wrong with that. I think what we're talking about are companies that have the ability to scale and products that have the ability to see kind of venture style returns is really what we're looking at. And then secondarily, we're looking at what's the technical component? Is there a science-backed mode or a technical mode? So we kind of, when you look at that universe of celebrity-backed or influence-backed products and brands, it's pretty diverse. You know, you've got all kinds of products, all kinds of different sets, but one little subset of that universe. And so I would say if you look at 100,000 feet up, down at that entire universe, I think one, all of these people who are saying celebrity brands and that kind of stuff are dying, A, it's incorrect factually, B, it's been going on for years. And like any consumer category, you'll have brands that are co-founded or launched by influencers that fail and ones that are massively successful. And that doesn't change. And I think it actually gets more and more important as you have, to your point, infinite choice. You know, you really want to understand the gate path decision into why you're buying a product in the first place. And so if you're super close to Rihanna or you're super close to Carrie Underwood or Megan Trainer, and you identify with them as a person, things that they want to build are going to be of deep relevance to you. And so then I think it becomes very similar to what goes on in the generic consumer category. Like I said, some will be great, some will fail, some will miss the mark, some will be great in their first couple of years of sales and die off because they weren't able to innovate. So I don't think it goes away. I think it just gets more and more important. And I think it becomes more important, particularly for people to understand why the company they're building or the product they're building needs to exist in the world. So if I'm a video influencer on YouTube and my audience is screaming out for merch, I provide merch, you know, and am I going to build a merch empire? Probably not, but is it possible? Sure. If I am Jonathan Van Ness and Anthony Porowski and I'm super passionate about pets and cooking and do I want to build an empire around an entire healthy pet food and pet treat brand? Yes, I'm going to do that. And they're doing them for very different motivations and reasons. So A, I don't think it goes away. B, I think it becomes more important. And to your point about values of consumers, I think a lot of this, to be perfectly frank, is a little bit overblown around, I think folks under the age of 40 like to say they buy brands that they share values with. Not always so sure that that's how it plays out because inevitably, if you look at total sales of a product, you sort of see that skewing a little bit, but it's not always a driver. So for example, we built a showerhead brand called High, which is this beautiful best shower experience you will ever have in your life. And by the way, it happens to be really, really good for the environment. We've done a really great job of helping you reduce and be mindful of your water usage. I'm not so sure that's why people buy it. I think the number of people who buy it just for that reason is small. 
it helps assuage the benefit of having a great brand. And they're like, wow, this is just a killer experience. And oh yeah, it also adheres to my values. So I still think the number of people that are buying based on value base, there's a disconnect in the data between what people say they want to do and what they're actually doing. Way to call, like you see it, Leonard. I know that's one thing I've seen in some research too, right? It's like this disconnect or disparity between like, oh yeah, I would like to do that, but are people actually putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and seeking those brands out, whether it be, you know, spending extra money to get those products or going someplace completely outside of their typical shopping behaviors to get those products. It's definitely an interesting dichotomy, I think, that the industry is navigating right now. Are you ready to explore the evolved customer journey where content, community, and commerce converge? At the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo, you'll learn how brands and retailers are embracing new consumer insights, new technologies, and new destinations to create relevant and resonant experiences. Taking place on June 4th through the 6th at McCormick Place in Chicago, the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo will bring some of the brightest minds in the industry together for unique networking and learning opportunities, including keynote speaker, marketing expert, and author of For the Culture, Marcus Collins. Check out the show notes to register today. So I want to go back to your point around that reason for being, right? That brands need to understand the reason why the product exists to begin with, and that should kind of be the North Star. It seems like that's kind of like the big learning or takeaway in in a lot of this. But I'm curious, like, what your thoughts are, like, as far as what others listening to this show possibly can take from this and what examples maybe they should be thinking about and learning from, especially as we think about things like brand partnerships, collaborations, possibly onboarding these influencers or or celebrity partnerships. Because I think a lot of times it's seen as like a clout opportunity, but also an amplification opportunity. I mean, for some it makes sense, but maybe others not so much. So, I mean, are there any notable learnings that they can kind of take from some of the great examples that we've talked about already, or maybe even others within your portfolio? Yeah. I mean, I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The one thing I will say to you is I'm sort of speaking out of two sides of my mouth. So I think it's very important when you're building a brand that that brand stands for something. Because I do think that people will buy based on different triggers but they're always inevitably looking for what the the brand values are. Now, sometimes they'll buy based on those, sometimes they won't. But I think in a market that's noisy like this, the values that the brand stands for are critically important for consumers to understand. Put aside whether that actually converts them or not, it's just important to stand out. And by the way, at Caravan, we have two long-term theses that I think are 95% of our builds are in, which is we believe in the long-term importance of human wellness and health, and we believe in the exact same for the planet, planetary wellness and health. And so we generally are looking at those two lanes when we're making things and when we're building stuff. And I think the reason it's important is if you're going to work with someone who is 
an audience generator or has audience, I think you want to make sure that there's a couple things you're asking yourself and the rest of your stakeholders, whether they're investors or partners. I think you have to make sure that the person you're working with understands what it means to be an entrepreneur. Actually, I would go above that. I think you have to understand the nature of what you are setting up. Is it really an endorsement? Is it really a licensing deal? Again, nothing wrong with those things that can be massively effective. Or are you asking someone to be a co-founder and actually a partner in the business? And I think once you pick one of those lanes, and I'll pick our lane, which is a co-founder, you then want to ask the question, does the individual I'm partnering with really understand and want to be an entrepreneur? What are their long-term goals? What are they trying to get out of it? Like, are we aligned in the interests of what we're building? Two, you want to draw a very clear map about what your expectations are of that partner. Is it marketing? Is it product? Do you want them in hiring meetings? I'll give you an example. If you're selling into retail, sometimes one of the most important things a talent partner can do is actually show up at retail buyer meetings. And you have to really impress upon them at that point, like, you can't miss those meetings. Those are mission critical to the company if you're meeting with the buying team at Walmart or Target or Best Buy. So I think those are the things you have to really get right in the beginning. And then I think once those things are aligned, you start to align on the brand and the brand's values. I think sometimes people do it the other way. They start with like, we've built this really cool product and this is what the brand stands for and you're aligned with that brand value and what do you think about it? Do you like the product? Have you tried it? I think that's what you do second. You have to start with those other questions first, which is like, what is the structure that we're asking this person? And if we're asking them to be an entrepreneur, do they know what that means and is it clear what's being expected of them? And then the last thing I'd say about that too is, you want to make sure you have a direct relationship with the talent because, as you can imagine, there's lots of middle layers of communication that you have to go through between agents and managers and business managers and lawyers. You want to make sure that you are establishing a really good direct line to the talent to be able to actually be a partner. So many good points. And it really shows how nuance this is and how quickly, at least in my opinion, like it could get a little hairy, right? Like this could really yeah. fall apart if you don't put the proper checks and balances in place, so to speak. And if you don't do the pre-work, right? Like, are there any notable red flags or challenges? Like, so once the company picks a lane, right, and they figure out what direction they want to go into, they're ready to move forward. Are there any areas that could possibly fall apart, that they should pay extra close attention to, like anything that you guys have learned in the process of standing up these brands that you can kind of consider possible touch points or checkpoints to make sure things progress as they should? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two, again, two lanes here that you have to look at. One is the nature of the partnership with the talent or celebrity, and the second is the product and company itself. Let me focus on, just to continue on what we were talking before, I think as you're growing the business, you've now said, yep, we're building a company, we're co-founding with person X, they want to be an entrepreneur, they get it. I think the first thing you want to watch for is, is there a continued level of engagement and support with that co-founder? Or do they tend to put their layers of management in front of you in communication? Because that can be, as you know, as I'm sure everyone listening knows, building a company is horrifically hard work. And you are going to have moments, I say this to people all the time, like, friends and, you know, my better half will ask me, you know, did you have a good day? And I'll say, 
I don't even know what having a good day means. Like when you're <laughs> building companies like this at scale, you have eight dumpster fires in a day, six <laughs> or seven amazing things that happen, and your days are either net neutral, net positive, or net negative. And it's not like I ever have a day where it's unbelievable and everything, you know, like if I have a net positive day, I've had four more amazing things than dumpster fires, but I still have the dumpster fires. And I think one of the challenges in celebrity-backed brands is I think often these folks are sheltered from the dumpster fires and they don't see what goes on behind the curtain sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to be entrepreneurs, it is a rude awakening when you have those dumpster fires to actually have to deal with them. And so I think one of the things you want to look at is how does your partner react to that? Are they engaged? Are they calm? Do they understand that this is just par for the course and it's not a, you know, you don't have to throw the the toys out of the pram and, you know, like this is just building a business. So I think that's one thing that I would really encourage watching for is how engaged do they stay over time and how much they throw intermediaries into the mix when you communicate. And then last thing about the people, I would also look at how closely they want to get engaged in product development, because even though they may not have the skill sets for it, the fact that someone wants to engage in product development is a really good sign of the commitment and understanding of how important product is. So I think that's the talent celebrity lane. I think in the company lane, you've just got to stay very close to data. You have to constantly be asking yourself the question, are we building a product that no one wants or the world doesn't need? And if you feel in your gut that the answer to that is yes, you have to kill it and just accept that your data was right, was wrong. Or you have to look at the other things that may not be taking it. Do you have a pricing problem? Do you have a di- distribution problem? Is there a messaging issue? So I think you just, you have to stay close to the math I say this all the time to people I work with, like, I think when people think about the web or mobile or blockchain or any of these amazing opportunities for distribution, they put their marketing hats on. But the truth is selling product now and selling companies and building stuff is a mathematics game. It's a game of inches. You have to be a mathematical expert to understand how the dials are turned and how to impact them. And so I think those are the two things you got to watch for that are the flags in either lane, by the way. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, especially because I know there have been so many discussions. I know we've covered a lot of brands that are laying out their growth strategies, how they're thinking about growth, how they're investing in growth. And sometimes that's through product. Sometimes it's through more of a lens of marketing, like you noted. So I'm curious, like as we think about like peeking inside the caravan machine, so to speak, like how do you guys ensure that you're on that path to growth for each of your brands, right? Like obviously staying close to the data, having a really powerful product, having a partner that is connected, is embracing those moments where it is a dumpster fire, like you said. Like, what does it look like after that? Like that idea of acquiring customers, retaining customers, because obviously it goes so much longer and further than like, okay, we got this product to market. We got some initial buzz for the launch. Great. Good. Like what comes next? Like, how do you think about that growth side of things? I'll give you the answer from a product perspective, because that's the area I think is most important. I think you could have someone like one of my partners could come and talk to you about the marketing piece. For me, the marketing doesn't work. There's lots of examples of companies that have unbelievable growth and that growth comes very early 
And it's either because the marketing message really landed, talent really landed, but inevitably it fizzles out because the product isn't great or they're not innovating in a category. And so I think for me, the thing that matters the most in growth is two levers, listening to customers very closely, understanding what they're doing, understanding how they're using the product, which is why, by the way, we try to build data into all the products we make. The company I referred to earlier, High, which we have a showerhead brand, we have incredible amounts of data about the customers and their usage and how they're using it. And the things you learn that are triggers in the buying process are massively valuable. And so I think that's one, listen to customers, speak to them consistently. And secondarily, you have to always be innovating the product. It cannot stand still. It's got to better technical mode, better product. You've got to take the listings you took in step, the learnings and listings you took in step one and grow those into something that is a new iteration of the product. And I think new products, new categories, new reasons of being, that's really important. I think for me, growth starts with product and starts with listening to customers because you can burn out very quickly on marketing growth if you know, it's kind of like a musical chairs game and inevitably the music stops and you're left with the same product that you haven't been listening to customers. You've seen a lot of that in the D2C era, right? Like people who spent hundreds of millions on marketing and their churn rates were through the roof. And inevitably when the funding stopped, they didn't have the products that people wanted. They weren't innovating. And you can see other stories of people in the D2C space who just kept innovating, kept growing, even in COVID. Even look at the luggage space during COVID, right? A lot of those companies got absolutely hammered, but they came back strong. One, lots of travel going on, but two, they had already taken that time to innovate their product categories and go into new areas and build new tech and new products. So I think that's the key. It's growth is tied to product and customer feedback. It's not tied to marketing. Got it. No, I think there are some really, really important call outs there because I feel like when it comes to this industry, it's like the cream ultimately rises to the top, right? Like you can have really fun branding, you could have really awesome campaigns, you know, spokespeople, co-founders, however you want to frame them. But if the product doesn't fulfill the promise or meet the need that you're saying, you know, through that marketing that you are doing successfully, then that's when the chain breaks, so to speak. So as far as measuring success then, since it is a largely product-related discussion, like how do you think about that measurement of success or impact? Is it reach, penetration? Like how are you guys thinking about this holistically across your different products and brands? You want to look at it, again, through a customer lens. Like you want to see why people are buying and what are the triggers of what they're buying. And so when you're looking at things like acquisition and retention, you want to always be managing and understanding the levers that brought people in the door in the first place. And so we're very careful to manage, we always joke about it, call it caravan drift. You know, like, are we emotionally connected to a company that really just shouldn't exist anymore because we got the data wrong or the customer fit wasn't there or the product wasn't as good as we thought. And so we're constantly asking ourselves, like, are we just in love with something? Are we drinking our own Kool-Aid? Or is this a business that we deeply believe in? And so 
I feel like the only way you can answer that, there'll be moments in the history of a business where your customer acquisition is not great. It could be seasonality. It could be the pricing is wrong. It could be the acquisition channels are changing algorithms. There's all kinds of reasons. So inevitably, I feel like that's not always the best measure. The best measure is kind of those thousand true fans. Like if you can find those first thousand true fans of the product that are really passionate about it, care about it. And, you know, I remember we spent a lot of time looking at reviews, reviews of products at Yummers and Fit52 and the reviews of our mobile game on Apple, Hanks 101, which we built with Tom Hanks. But if you look at, for example, High as another, I remember with High, we got this press review where the person said like, this had brought us to tears. Like the experience was so good and it was such an unmet need that I literally cried, I wept in the shower. <laughs> I was so happy. And those are the things we care about because you'll always, and this I think is the most important lesson in consumer, is you will always have moments where the customer acquisition isn't great, or you'll always have moments where there'll be a seasonality or a lull. But as long as you're listening to customers and you feel like you've got that core base of fans that love the product, if you can innovate and grow based on them and that feedback and understanding how to mine further into that world, you'll be successful. And I think that's the key is you just have to know who is your core and you have to have a person leading that business that is a member of that core. And then it grows from there. All good businesses start with a beachhead and grow and take over after that. And I think that's the thing that sometimes people miss. I also think, by the way, just, just on another note, I think certainly in the technology startup world, and arguably that has bled into consumer, there was this culture of people, I think, this fail fast community. And for many years, based on Eric Reese's work, folks were just looking at stuff and they're like, oh, we tested it, we A-B tested it, we ran it for six months, it didn't work, we're shutting it down. Eh, not sure that's the right way either. If, you know, like it's kind of created a culture of laziness and lack of accountability. Like I think in your gut, if you see the data is showing you people love it, but you're still not seeing the acquisition metrics you need, you solve that problem. The problem isn't the product at that point. So that's what we look at. We just, we are constantly looking each other in the eyes and saying, are we drifting or are we actually sitting on a product that people love and we've got other levers we have to fix? Well, that's amazing. So many potent points, Leonard. And I think so many great takeaways to that all of our listeners can take and apply and share with their team. But I guess to close things out, I'm always curious, like what folks are tracking, what folks are thinking about, especially companies like yours. I mean, you're in so many different industries, you're pulling so many different levers, building all these different brands. One, I mean, what trends are you watching? What categories do you think have the most potential? And really, too, what's next for you guys? Like, I feel like we're in this incredibly fascinating stage and phase of product and brand and influence, like all of these three things coming together with a, this cultural lens, like that people want to connect with lifestyles and people and products are kind of the connecting point. So, I mean, what are you guys thinking about? Like, 
how are you figuring out your next move, I guess, is really the question. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we are long-term believers in those two theses I mentioned earlier, which is, I think we are very long on human health and human wellness. And thing, I think people's interest in longevity and wellness, both mental and physical, familial wellness, I think those are things that we see as growth categories over the next decade. I also think you're entering an era where that is true for the planet, where we're starting to move away from just heavy technical solutions to small behavioral-based solutions that are consumer-focused, where people can just get a great product, regardless that it's great for the environment. It's just, it's the best product in its category. And that's how we look at high. High is the best product in the shower category, hands down. And by the way, it just happens to be really good for the environment. And we like that theory, the ability that you can make unbelievable products that compete with everything else in the market that also happen to be better for the environment. And we think that era is just going to get noisier and better over the next decade. I also think there's going to be a lot of technical solutions that are going to rise up. My partners and I would disagree on some of this, but I am a long-term believer that blockchain is going to reinvent consumer loyalty and engagement. And the problem is we're in the technical gobbledygook face of blockchain where kind of like you were in the first stages of the internet or streaming where like inevitably no one's going to care how the sausage is made. Inevitably what people are going to care about is you're using this incredibly valuable piece of technology on the blockchain to make a consumer's experience better. And to give you an example of that, I think loyalty programs are going to be completely rewritten. So in a world where you've got infinite choice in consumer brands, I think what you're going to see is every consumer in the next five years is going to have a handful of brands that they are intimately connected to because they get dividends back from participating in the brand through blockchain. Because we can monitor your purchasing power. We can monitor you being a token holder in the company and give you super affiliate privileges and the ability to share in dividends, the ability to release customized product to a small set of people. So I think we look at planetary wellness, human wellness long-term, and the technologies that underlie that that are going to give us an advantage and be the next big reinvention of consumer the way D2C was five, six years ago. And I think blockchain is one of those tool sets that we're pretty excited about AI, maybe. I think it just depends on the category and that you're looking at for the applicability to consumers. So I think those are the areas we're looking at that we're pretty excited about. Very interesting. We may have to have you back on the show, Leonard, to talk about blockchain because that's definitely one area I'm certainly fascinated in. And I think there have been some recent examples of new approaches to loyalty programs and, you know, brands that are really testing those limits. So maybe that's uh, something else that we could talk about in the near future. But by the way, like if you think about blockchain, this is just a cautious reminder to not be on the wrong side of history. Like you go back, I'm old enough to have lived through the first dot com downfall. And if you go back and look at the media, the people that were investing, you know, when pets.com went bankrupt, that would be like saying, oh, this is it. The internet's going to have no impact on consumption. It's going to have no impact. We told you it was a failure. Or even in the narrow lane, oh, there's going to be no successful pet products on the internet. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's 
these models are built on high stakes financing, which requires high stake failure in order to bring things forward into the consumer's mind. And so saying that blockchain is irrelevant or that because of the crypto winter, it's going to have no relevance would be like saying the internet was going to die off after 2001. I mean, that's stupid. So we're very big believers in it and excited about being a part of writing that story a little bit. Awesome. Great. We'll have to keep an eye out to see to see what happens next. But for now, Leonard, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I always love digging into folks that help build brands, have their hands in the data, so to speak, and have some valuable lessons to learn with our audience. So really appreciate you taking the time out to chat with me today. It was really my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was super cool to chat with you. And hopefully it's not the last time we talk about this. Our goal is to always keep the conversation going, especially on social media. So we'll be sure to tag you, Leonard, on socials. That way, if folks have any follow-up questions, they can ask them. And hopefully it can lead to some new ideation and new inspiration for folks that are building out their product strategy and figuring out what new opportunities they have to expand their portfolios, find new paths to growth, and even new partnerships. And of course, we'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on this conversation. Leave us a rating or review on your preferred podcast player. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, frankly, anywhere else. We're probably there too. As you know, by now we are speaking with folks like Leonard every week, folks who are in the trenches doing the work and are seeing these incredible brands through. So be sure to subscribe to the show. That way you get the latest and greatest delivered right to your preferred device. But for now, that is it from us, everyone. Leonard, thank you again so much for taking the time to join me. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.